And now it's time for Cadaver Classics. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our second episode of Cadaver Classics. I'm Mike, and with me, as always, is the illustrious Stephen. How's it going, my man? It's going great, my friend. How are you doing this week? Uh, not too bad. What, you only care about what I'm, how I'm doing this week? I mean, it's been a month since we recorded it. Don't you care about how I was in those other weeks? No, not really. Oh, okay. I, read you. Is, I, I keep is, up on your Twitter, and uh, I get reports <laughs> from uh, my spies around the globe. Your Twitter spies? <laughs> well, that's great. I'm scared a little bit. Why is that? Uh, did, they, did they tell you I'm touching myself right now? Um, no, but I kind of guessed. <laughs> I guess that's a pretty safe bet. Yeah, the, the second you I know, the second you hear my voice, you start to get aroused. So. <laughs> Yikes! That, that's the beauty of Not being good. a bass. Oh, sure. So, how you been, man? I, I've been doing good. Um, just uh, you know, we're in into that you know whole week before Christmas where I start to hate the fucking world. And my wife, I, I swear to God, she has <laughs> this 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 very subtle way. Of ruining Christmas for me every year. Oh, great. Now, now, like, for instance, just little things that she knows is going to fucking tweak me. Like, for instance, <laughs> she she's decided that she is going to make candy. Tons and tons of candy. So we've got the peanut butter Sounds chocolate okay covered. to me. Oh, yeah, you would think. Yeah. But we've got, like, the chocolate covered peanut butter balls, and, which are fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah, this sounds real hard. <laughs> and, and the chocolate chip cookies and stuff, you know. All right, but she's making hard candy now, and like Uh-oh. like pounds and pounds and pounds of hard candy, and uh-huh. so she has all the little different bottles of flavor, and she so she says to me, "These are the flavors I have: peanut butter." I was like, "Well, that sounds good. I like peanut butter. I love peanut butter. Right. I could eat uh-huh. a, f- a whole fucking jar of peanut butter." She has it chocolate. Reminds you of uh, some safe time to, with your dog. Wait, did I get that backwards? Anyway, no, that's about right. <laughs> and she's like, well, we've got chocolate and chocolate mint. And I was like, both of those sound very good. Then she's mm-hmm. like, we have butter rum. I was like, nah, not really. We have cinnamon. Mm-hmm. I hate fucking artificial cinnamon. I hate the smell of it. I hate like big red gum. Same here. Somebody's Stay chewing on, big I'm red with, gum. I, or I, I'm with you on that. It's like, it's, it's horrible. I can't, I can't talk to someone if they're chewing that and it's a, a fresh piece. Yeah. That, that smell just fucking gets an, it just permeates oh. like, I'm glad it's the not the very just me. essence of my being. <laughs> grape, and I'm like I'm not really into grape. That's a kids. Yeah, That's a kids. Yeah, and there's lemon. I was like, well, I kind of like lemon drops. Flavor, That's so that might be all right. But so anyway, I I go to my room and decide to take a little nap. I wake up and I was like, oh, how's the candy coming? Great. Uh-huh. I made two batches of cinnamon. One of butter rum of and one of grape, and I was like, "Where the fuck? <laughs> where the fuck's the peanut butter candy? Where where's the peanut butter or the chocolate mint? Oh, I don't right. think I'm gonna mess with that tonight." I was like, "Then why did you why did you fucking ask me? <laughs> just just so you just in case there was any hint of doubt which flavors you could not make and make me upset." <laughs> You know, you get my hopes up. She's like, I want to piss him off, but I want to make sure I'm pissing him off. I don't want to just assume I can. I want to make sure. Exactly. That's it's excellent. like, why did we have you know, that fucking conversation? It's this whole passive-aggressive thing. 
And then Saturday, oh, then, then Saturday, I have her whole family, her whole family coming over. Charlie, I can deal with because he he's kind of a goof ass and a big, he's kind of a geek and you know he's into like Star sure. Wars and horror movies and I mean that's what we do at work is fucking watch you know watched uh, you know seasons of Aqua Teen Hunger Force in between. You know, Sounds fucking, rough. Yeah, it's sometimes it's a very rough life I have. I don't know, just this collection of people, only one of whom I have anything in common with. Well, dude, having people, I, here's here's the thing is. I think having anybody over, any amount of people over, for any reason, is does not interest me at all. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's like, I mean, believe it or not, I'm kind of a recluse. My wife calls me a hermit because you know when I have people over, it's like one or two buddies. You know, it's you know we don't ever have like like she wants to every once in a while she'll want to invite like six couples over and. And all this stuff. I'm like, I don't care if you if you if you do that stuff, but you're doing it without me and not at my house. Well, of course, I I realize that I'm an idiot, but still, but literally having people at your house is a problem because where are you gonna escape to? Because even though like I have the Nono room upstairs, I could come up here and 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 have this uh, this fake alone time knowing those people down are down there and knowing they can come up at any time that bothers me man you never know when your masturbation is going to be interrupted <laughs> yeah exactly well that's it's rough i mean you can't see, if you stop I mean, halfway man. yeah and then you got the blue balls to fucking deal with and it's just too much fucking hassle but, but see to me see to me the only thing worse than having people at my house is have, having to be at somebody else's house that I don't have any fucking thing in common with. Right. Like, like I, we did Thanksgiving at the religious sister's house. Oh, great. I, when he's, he's like flipping through the channels, you know, looking for something to put on the TV. And uh -huh. I'm thinking to myself, I'll oh, stop there, stop there, stop there, you know, right. and it's a hunting show. I'm like, seriously. Really? Okay. I have nothing to talk to you about. Now I can't even distract myself. With the television, because it's your house, your remote, <laughs> you're putting it on your thing. You and know, then, I figured out, I figured something out, Stephen. I'm going to let you in on this secret. What's that? Find an excuse, any excuse to drive separately. Because I do that. I mean, you should say, oh, well, I, you know, I mean, I'll come up with stupid crap. Like, I got to go help my dad do this. And I'll go up to my dad's and we'll hang out and maybe I might help him do something. But if I drive separately, I can leave at any time. But the problem, I mean... Like her sister lives out in the fucking boonies. I don't even want to oh. take one car out there. Much, much less. Two. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. No, no word. My fam, my wife's family, or, or my family. We don't. I mean, it's only like maximum half hour. I don't. Mm. I don't mind taking two cars a half hour, yeah. so I can be free. <laughs> yeah, but then then it's like, well, what do you have to do? I was like, yeah, she knows I'm not going fucking. She knows I don't have anything pressing. Well, no. And it and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to the wife. It matter. It it matters because I mean my my wife knows. My wife knows this stuff. But it's it's uh, it's the excuse to tell the parents in law or the other family members that has to stick. Yeah. Well, but see, my my whole thing is it means a lot to Lisa. So that's why I've got to fucking yeah. do it. I mean, I did wait until the last minute to go up there. Uh -huh. So it's it's kind of like okay you know I wait until you called and said there's in the oven before I fucking went up there. 
So now I feel like, you know, obligated to fucking hang out, you know, okay, I ate, your, ate dinner here. I guess I'm obligated to hang out at least, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes. And, you know, and then well, it's... you're a- forgetting something, man. What's that? You're, you're forgetting the main thing is, and I don't want to sound egotistical, but any time hanging out with me for anybody else is that they, they clamor for it. So basically it makes Ember happy. If I show up, because then everyone's happy, and then I can leave. I oh. hope that didn't sound egotistical. No, no, no I, I think that sounds about right, and I think more people should have that attitude towards me. And <laughs> I, so, okay. what I probably haven't done is made them aware of how lucky they are. Ooh, see, I, I'm in constant reminder mode. Yeah, and dude, look at this. <laughs> yeah, so I, maybe maybe that's where I'm going wrong. Ah, there you go. Which you know that actually surprises me about you, since you know you you typically are always telling us how awesome you are. I, I believe it. I'm sure. See, here's the thing: if this were if this were like video, yeah, I'd uh-huh. pretty much all I'd have to do is sit here. Uh huh. Right. But but uh-huh. since this is audio, yeah, I've got to fucking tell you. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise you wouldn't know how fucking wonderful I am. That's a that's a great point, and I'll give that to you for sure. Yes. Yeah. It does make for very good radio if I don't. If I can tell you anything, right? No, that touche, man. You're right. I'll give that to you. I, I, I take what I just said back. Okay. Yeah. I think on some certain level, you should be able to feel my awesomeness through these thousands of miles of cable that are connecting us. I already told you. I already told you. I've got an erection. I don't yes, know what else you right. want. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good enough. I mean, <laughs> what do you say we move on? This conversation sucks. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, um, I'm, now I, I'm just fucking depressed, and I hate fucking Christmas even more. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe, maybe I, I shouldn't have even you. brought it up. And I and listen, I could go on and complain about about this time of year, but I won't because ever it'll just depress everybody. I, I, yeah, I'm not a big Christmas time fan, but anyway, um, I did want to mention one thing. Okay. To everybody out there, and uh, uh, I, I don't know if you know this, but uh, you know the Dead Lantern Splattercast. Yes. They came out, we, you know, they, they do their Splat Academy Awards every year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but Motion Picture Massacre is nominated for the best horror podcast. Did you know that? Uh, as a matter of fact, I did cast my vote for our good friend Vaughn just this afternoon. Same here. And so, encouraged everyone in the office that has been <laughs> blessed with internet access to the same. Oh, my gosh, dude. Now, okay, so... And they were I like, why am I doing this? And I... Uh, just trust me as a favor to me. Just do it for the for the, the for the universe benefit. Will be better, right? For the benefit of all mankind. Exactly. We encourage you bon- because I mean, Cadaver Lab is actually nominated for an award, but we're not going to campaign no, for Cadaver Lab. No. We are campaigning well, no, no, for Motion no, no. Picture Massacre because we no, are willing to, to concede that yes, Motion Picture Massacre is the superior podcast. Absolutely, absolutely. Plus. Plus, who cares? Who cares about the this thing? However, let me let me tell you why we all and I and already voted for Motion Picture Massacre as well from work and from uh, home. Basically, I was on Twitter and we were talking about it, and uh, I think me and uh, Mike from Fear Shop were talking about it. And Vaughn gets on there. He goes, "You know what? If I win, I'm going to tell everybody just how I feel." And I, he, uh, I actually quoted him from Twitter. Allow me to read it. Okay. He said, "It will be pure venom." I assume he meant venom, uh, <laughs> yeah. but he said nothing will be the same. And you know what? Coming from Vaughn, I totally believe that. So make sure to go out and vote uh, deadlander.com slash vote. You guys, please, we need to get Vaughn to win 
you will be doing me a personal favor if Vaughn wins because I think that that will that will afford that that will give the world so much great comedy, and uh, it will we'll all be better people for it. Yeah, absolutely. The, what, what the world needs is is a little more Vaughn. Well, I just and, I just feel like I feel like Vaughn on his show. You know, he, he maybe holds back a little bit, believe it or not. I just want to see Vaughn at full force. I want you know, and and, and what this, this would be a great, uh, you know, just a great uh, pedestal for him to get on, you know, and reach a bunch of people who who are you know interested in this kind of stuff. But oh my gosh, dude, this will be that would be so awesome. Yeah, bitches, go vote for Vaughn. <laughs> Motion Picture Massacre. Motion Picture Massacre. Uh, yeah. And listen, I'm not trying to take away from the other podcasts. There are some other good podcasts on there. But really, I promise you, nothing will be better if Vaughn than if Vaughn wins. We will all – oh, my gosh. I, I just – I mean, I'm, I'm grinning just thinking about it. So go do it. This is not just, I think, a vote for – a vote for Vaughn is a vote for douchiness in general. And absolutely for the douche in if all Vaughn of us, wins, we all win. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You know, it's a vote for you. It's a vote for me. It's a vote for all the podcast listeners out there. It's a absolutely. way of saying, yes, we matter. And Vaughn and will tell what? us exactly <laughs> how much we matter. I, you know, I, exact one last thing. I don't want, I don't want you to think that I'm doing this to, to make light of Vaughn or Vaughn Shorting. I, I freaking love listening to Vaughn. He's one of the most interesting dudes out there. But the reason I want him to win is for the Vemon. I don't know if there's anybody that has more Vemon in him than Vaughn. Yeah. Ex- I mean, <laughs> th- there are animals, I guess, in the uh, animal kingdom that are Veminous. <laughs> 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 but but no, none more so than Vaughn. You're uh you're doing some uh you're you're uh presenting an award, aren't you? Ah uh, yes. Cadaver Lab. Yeah, Cadaver. Uh, yeah, you're doing one, and I will be presenting uh, best television show. Cool. I can't remember which one I'm doing, but uh, should be good. I hope Dexter wins that. By the way. Um. Well, <laughs> I don't know. The Walking Dead was really good, so. Now you guys, I listen to you on Root Rotten, Corey. I'll get big boners over The Walking Dead. That's fine. That's great. Everybody loves The Walking Dead. Well, that, well, <laughs> it was that, okay. It was okay. Oh my god. Well, I mean, don't don't give me that crap. Come on, listen. It looked great. It uh, uh, you know it's it's uh, fantastic, especially for being on AMC. You know, with the level of violence they have. I just I don't know. And and it's hard for me to to really put into words what I don't like about it. Um, it's just that I don't have that feeling that I'll hurry and want to watch the subsequent episodes, you know, I just don't have that draw to it. And that's all, I mean, that's all there really is to it. I, sometimes it drags a little bit for me because of all this relationship garbage and, and all this stuff. I, you know, I, but whatever, yeah, I don't, well, it, it I just mean, doesn't like have it, that draw. Like, like season five of Dexter, I just, I, I freaking started watching it and I could not stop. I was compelled. The power of Dexter compelled me. I never got that with Walking Dead. Oh, fair enough. I mean, and this is a conversation you know, we had off air uh, last month. Was you know, me and you? Yeah, about the, you okay. know the, the zombie formula. That is, you know, it's le- it's not about the zombies. It's about the survivors. You get this crew of fucking people together, sure. and you know, it's it's a matter of whether or not the relationships are compelling or not. For me, they were. And you know, if- my wife loved this show, and that's. 
and that uh you know so i mean i'm gonna keep watching it just if nothing else it's something we can share but it's not that i hate it it's not it's worth watching i just i don't know it just doesn't compel me but tell me if i'm being stupid i i am kind of getting to the point where zombie stuff is, isn't that interesting to me anymore i used to just love zombies mm-hmm. you know I, I think I just go through waves. I'm, I'm just not. I'm not in that in that mindset much anymore. You know, and maybe yeah. it was just bad timing for for me. But obviously, it wasn't bad timing for the series for you know overall because everyone seems to love it. But let me ask you something. And sure. I've t- I think we, I've talked about this before on uh, on some podcasts earlier. But uh, you know how a lot of people feel like. Well, no, let's, okay. So you know, a lot of people love zombie movies, and it's and they love the mystery of why the why people are 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 why the dead are walking the earth again? Am I stupid to to just think that oh, I'm kind of getting tired of that? It would be nice to have some kind of an origin story where it you know maybe even some sinister type of of uh, some sinister happens or something supernatural happens. You know I don't know I I really like the you know figuring out why they're there and not I mean and not I mean I don't think that's what it, a film it's not good if we don't get that i'm just saying that it would be nice to figure it out i mean what do you think well i certainly think there's room for that there, i guess there's been a couple of movies but yeah for the most part you know we zombie movies tend to take it as a given occurrence and that's right what, yeah that's all there is to it and know, it seems to it seems any to just other bring kind along of the any, same cliche. I mean, the sin not cliche, but the same like storylines. Oh, here's ten people who are together and they have to survive a zombie holocaust. And it's like, yeah, okay, I get it. You know, okay, another one of these. I don't know. Maybe I'm being too too uh, critical, but I don't know. I, I especially like supernatural, you know, uh, evil, you know, backstory stuff like that. But whatever. I think I think is. Um... This formula, because I mean, this we are all kind of in agreement that the formula is kind of played out. No, really. Even if we but know then, why the zombies happen, that wouldn't that wouldn't really solve the problem that that formula is played out. I mean, that that formula would still be there. Well, but, no, but but you know. but yeah, I can certainly see where there's room for kind of super supernatural occurrence and you know some kind of conflict there where you know trying to. You rid the world of whatever evil is rather than just surviving. Sure. Well, you know, and you have a mission to go close the, the lid on the, the Ark of the Covenant to, to, because that the power coming from that is, you know, you know, maybe tie some religious crap into it. You know, so that the power of, of, uh, the, uh, of coming back from the dead came from that. And that's, and some evil person is holding that. You know, I mean, I'm being stupid, obviously, but, you know, something like that. It might be fun. Yeah, it would certainly make for decent action when there's, yeah, an actual goal other than survival. Other than every once in a while, a horde of zombies shows up. Yeah. And, you know, the, the whole thing is, you know, anymore. It's it's never just like okay a localized event always zombie and the apocalypse tied together versus <laughs> you know you can't well, just have like a localized thing going on that you know, I don't know a movie I mean, about a zombie filled afternoon maybe isn't quite as uh, as compelling but who knows no I mean we present to you zombie be, afternoon well, at least to be something different for Christ's sake at least until dinner time zombie afternoon I'm surprised. Yeah, we haven't had Afternoon of the Dead yet. <laughs> Dawn, day. 
Well, what about late afternoon, evening of the dead? Yeah. That, that, that would, would be excellent. <laughs> yeah, dinner time of the dead. <laughs> That's the worst time because uh, zombies typically make me lose my appetite. But rush, rush, afternoon rush hour of the dead. Well, that would suck because you're, you're stuck in, in those cars. Yeah, you're stuck in traffic and zombies come. That would, I don't know. <laughs> hey, uh, I got a, I got a uh, Christmas card from Johnny T. Oh, really? Cool. He's a freaking nice guy, man. He is. He's a hell of a guy. You know how he sent us that uh, the, the MP3 with him and his buddies the other day? I heard, I heard an MP3 of his on Midnight Corey show. And, uh, man, just, I think I just, one of these days I want to fly over there and just be one of those ladies in the back that talk. Mm-hmm. And uh, while you know, while they do the thing, it sounds so fun. Oh goodness! Did you see Victoria, the Spice Girl, what she did today? Yeah, but and see, here's the thing: I heard him on Horror, etc., and he was so well spoken and thoughtful, really? and thought provoking. Wow. And I listened. I was like, "Yeah, this is Johnny Tay from the UK." I was, like, wait, that's that's not Johnny. First off, I understood what the fuck he was saying. <laughs> Secondly, that was rather an interesting two-minute call versus. Wow! And he didn't mention his balls once. He didn't mention. What? He, it was uncanny. I think. Wow. I think he may have like one of those Norman Bates splits personality things going on, and, really? and they can't, of course they can't cure him because they don't have fucking decent health care over there. Well, you just have to wait like eight months to get into the doctor, from what I hear. Yeah. So. <laughs> but dude, I honestly I brought up that fact just so I could use my British accent because I have it on good authority that it makes vaginas dry up. Yeah. Because and, it's so terrible. My vagina just dried up, as a matter of fact. I wasn't going to mention it. Well, good thing you always have a lot of lube on hand, I'm sure. Oh yeah, that's true. I'll have to get in <laughs> have to get in the toy box. And speaking yeah, of yeah. speaking of Johnny T, you want to talk about some testicles? Sure. All right, it's time for ball talk. Spanning the globe to bring you the latest in testicular news, it's time for Ball Talk. Alright, this time out, of course, uh, this one comes from Johnny T again. The largest testicles of any species, the bush cricket. I assume it's relative. The testicles of the bush cricket actually make up 14% of its body mass. Really? Right, which is, I guess I'm going to have to talk to uh, entomologists because I'm at least 22%. <laughs> Listen, but, guys, I'm sorry. You are wrong about crickets and their walls. Right, because it, it's, it says here if the same proportion were applied to a man, his testicles would weigh the equivalent of six bags of sugar each. <laughs> No, oh, no, first rough. off, since when as have bags of sugar? Is that a unit? Is that a unit of measurement in England? Oh, how much do you weigh? Oh, about nine bags of sugar. I mean, <laughs> nine and three quarters bags of sugar, and and two stone because African if, European sugar. Yeah, exactly. Are we talking you know brown sugar? Are we talking powdered sugar? Are we talking cane sugar? <laughs> Splenda. I mean, I, di- I didn't realize this was, a- and because if you go to my grocery store, the like just the, even this little shitty grocery store down in the corner, you can buy it in like five pound bags or three pound bags or one pound boxes. So I'm not really sure. I- <laughs> it would be the equivalent of how many bags of sugar. That's awesome. You know what? It's so funny. And, and here we are talking about the British who, uh, 
who uh, you know even ditched the the English uh, measuring system for the metric system, and yet we have one over here. But yet right. uh, they they just they said, you know what? I don't want to I don't want and, and take over the metric system. So I'm going to start measuring shit by by how how much uh, a sugar bag weighs. Yes, yeah, it's they, they've gone to the confectionery system of measurement. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, like, um, like property now is measured in licorice ropes. Ooh, excellent! Oh, I, I saw where uh, some guy was arrested for having uh, three gumdrops worth of uh, cocaine. Cocaine. Yeah, it was. So you know, this whole system that they've got going on over there, you know, the, the whole Willy Wonka system of measurement—it's fucking wacky. <laughs> But um, Wonk is taking over. He's part of the New World Order. That's what's going on. Oh, yeah. Wonk, Wonk is the man. I, I, if I could live anywhere, it would be in fucking Wonka factory. I would just... I hope I hope you go there when you die. How's that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I hope so, too. <laughs> <laughs> but, Everybody's wondering why that's so funny. But apparently there's a... Yeah, you, you had to... You missed all the sacrilegious shit before the show. <laughs> yeah. All right, but they're talking about sperm competition, where they're in this article where they say that all right by evolving larger larger testes males can produce more sperm and outcompete the others and so boost the chances of passing on their genes uh, the effect of such sperm competition is apparent in chimps where a fe- typical a female typically mates with all the males in her group oh, wow i dated a girl like that sluts yeah yeah uh, to compete male Did chimps have developed like the lo- or something do what? Were they like jocks? I mean, what, what, these chimps, man, they must have been some awesome. Of course, they weren't nerd chimps. You know, they were they were maybe the rocker chimps getting some uh, slutty chimpettes. Yeah, well, uh, chimp groupies are one of the phenomena of the animal kingdom. You know, I've screwed my chair of chimps. Which, so which, yeah, well, oh, yeah. Well, who hasn't? I mean, we've all right. been there. Uh, <laughs> let's see. To compete, male chimps have developed the largest testes of all the great apes. Which I did not know that. So apparently you can fuck a lot if you have big balls. I'm hoping Lisa doesn't hear about that because then she'll be expecting you. You already have like a a baker's dozen of kids. Yeah. Oh, 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 sorry. 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 You You have a uh, box of uh, gobstoppers of kids. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry. Let's let's, let's get that going. (laughs) Let's, Let's... Get that moving over here on this side of the ocean. Yeah, and, and yeah, and then we can develop the uh, app that converts real measurements into uh, dude. Those are real measurements. That hurts. Oh, I'm sorry. Different measurements, okay? Please, they're all equal in God's eyes. And I don't think God gives a shit how many bags of sugar your balls are. <laughs> I really think he's got are better you, things to do. Are you do. serious? That that was that was that was like the divine joke. You would look down. Mm, for you, two bags of sugar for your balls. You, two gobstoppers. So I can't believe that's the part of the article we latched on. To. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Because when I talked to Johnny about this, his thing was gives a whole new meaning to cricket balls. Yeah, that's a UK thing, but over here, you know, Americans, we don't know that what fake the fuck sport. That we, yeah, we, we've got baseball. Which is fake enough. Uh, that's, that's fake enough, yeah. But um, it turns out the crickets with the largest testicles produce the least sperm. Whoa! So 
there's a lot of surprises in this article. Uh, it was put out by The Guardian UK. Uh, you can check it out online. Just uh, jump to their science section uh, for November 10th of 2010 and find out all about whether or not big balls really make a fucking difference. Oh, that and, was informative and hilarious to me. Thank you. Well, it was informative, I guess. <laughs> well, come on. Anytime I, I have an excuse to talk about balls and sugar and dipping sugar in balls and licking the sugar. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Sorry, <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Wow, wow, wow. Sorry. I think there's children listening, dude. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Not ones with good parenting. Yeah, exactly. If you're a kid and you're listening to this right now, your, your parents, parents suck. You. <laughs> <laughs> they do not love you. Okay, sorry, yeah, sorry to now. break it to you, but it's true. And on that, <laughs> that's ball talk for this month. I love that segment. Yeah, I think we all learned a little bit about nature and ourselves this time out. <laughs> As we do on every episode of Classics. Yeah. But speaking of classics, we do have um, actually got movies to talk about this week. Uh, we actually have two movies, uh, both of which I have never seen and uh, both of which I have very strong feelings about. Oh, really? I uh, can't wait yes. to hear them. Yeah. This week we do have a Fritz Lang double feature, uh, 1927's Metropolis and 1931's M. And uh, you just take it in chronological. By, yeah, Metropolis. Yeah, oh, we'll start with okay. yeah, sure. Yeah, that would be first. <laughs> Numbers are hard for me. Just kidding. I didn't hear what you said. Anyways, up yours. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, I, Metropolis. I said, I, I said chronological, which means that the I know, I know, I know. The sugar plum would you. come before the jawbreaker. Oh, uh, oh, right, right. If we, I guess, we apply the confectionery units of time. Time. Oh, that's good. The uh, the time it takes you to suck a um, tootsie pop. How many licks does it take, Michael? I don't know. I, I always crunch. Yeah, me too. I always crunch. I can't do it. Sucker. I can't do it. What idiot would try that? Anyway, we don't want to get off onto that. <laughs> uh, okay, so Metropolis came out in 1927. You know, and, and the thing is, is, before we get start talking about this one, um, one of the things that I've got to say is, and I'm sure that most people who are listening have probably seen this, even though I hadn't, um, the who, whoever, well, I mean, I, I know Fritz Lang was the director, but I didn't catch who was like the uh, director of photography or the cinematographer or anything like that. Well, uh, but this movie was gorgeous. Well, and I uh, mean, it was. It actually had two ahead. cinematographers, one of whom was Carl Frund. Okay. And if you remember it, when we talked about German expressionism, he was the cinematographer Absolutely. for The Gollum. Uh, uh-huh. He was uh, the cinematographer for 1931 Todd Browning's Dracula. He was the director of The Mummy. And then uh, went on to uh, do television work for the. Uh, he's the one we talked about the three camera setup and uh, sitcoms. Oh, okay. Yeah. So if you if you go back to the JFMP German Expressionism shows, we spend a good bit of time talking about Carl Freund. So Did we do that on your show? <laughs> it's been it's, it's, it's all, been so long ago. So, <laughs> yeah. It's all a big haze. <laughs> but yeah, we are talking about one of the true pioneers of of cinematography, uh, Carl Freund. The reason I bring that up before we start talking about the story of it's in and of itself is because it, what I, what I noticed is that the way they set this up, the, 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 the parts that made up this movie was so conducive to, uh, 
allowing a guy to really express himself and to really go wild on this. And, and Froon did a great job, in my opinion, of uh, making everything in this movie stunning. Oh, yeah, Basically. absolutely. It's beautiful. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's, uh, that's, prob- that's probably my favorite thing about this movie. But anyways, to talk a little bit about it, um, what, what happens? Is this is some kind of uh, dystopian or, or utopian society in the future where um, you know, there's this great city, the city of Metropolis. It's home to you know, uh, the, the rich and, uh, and, and those who are smiled upon with, you know, with class and whatever. Um, however, underneath the surface, there is a, a group of uh, like a working class who uh, basically works these giant machines that keep the city of Metropolis running. And uh, so, I mean, it's kind of a – the whole movie's kind of a class battle. Uh, you know, those who are oppressed, the working class. And, and it's funny because not only do they, are they stuck underground having to work these machines, but they live at even a, a, a deeper depth. And uh, they've just kind of been forced to live down there, you know, for some reason. But it's funny because uh, the first thing I notice in this movie is the the big machine that they have is called is called uh, Moloch or, or something similar to that. And uh, basically, it, it it's just this, this, the design of the machine is is outstanding. You know, it, it's I don't know I don't know what it is exactly. I don't know if it was just a result of the time that it was created. But I mean, these were really I mean, I can't say enough of just how gorgeous all these were. And, you know, in, in, the, in the design of the machine, it was actually kind of creepy. I was watching it with my seven-year-old daughter, and she's like, Dad, why do all these things have eyes in them? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I mean, it's just like, I mean, maybe, maybe it was put there just so, you know, kind of a 1984-ish feel people are watching. But I don't know. I don't know if that was – I mean, that was just something that I thought about. I, don't, I didn't read anything about that. But um, Well, essentially, you have a, a kind of a, a preacher woman – who is telling these workers that there is going to be a mediator who to come along and help bridge the gap between the haves and the have-nots. The son of the ruler of Metropolis uh, falls in love with her and kind of comes to this uh, realization that he's going to be the one to mediate. I mean, you might as well say Messiah, but it's, I mean, because it really is uh, that kind of a story. Uh, there's a right. lot of biblical elements to it. And, you know, she's tell- talking about the Tower of Babel and, and she is. the Whore of Babylon and the Apocalypse. I mean, all these things are you, these religious, this religious imagery you know, permeates throughout. Right. But, uh, yeah, somebody's going to come along and bridge the gap between the haves and the have nots. Frederson, the ruler of Metropolis, uh, decides to go to Rotvang, who is a kind of a mad scientist who has created this robot whom he can put anyone's image on it. The and, robot, by the way, was creepy. Oh, the robot. It, it, it's a fucking amazing design. Again, another Absolutely. great fucking pe- kind of set piece around, uh, you know, probably the mo- one of the most iconic, iconic images in cinema. Oh, uh, absolutely. But I'd, uh, I'd seen that long before I ever watched this movie, which was last week, but yeah, but I I could I recognize that uh, you know the cover from that just because I think it, I think everyone has seen it, know what it is, right? And so what they decide to do, Fraterson decides that he he convinces Rotvang to put Maria's image on the uh, robot and then send the machine man out to create dissent among the workers 
force them to revolt, convince them to revolt so that Frederson has full authority to use force against them and wipe them out. That's what's going on right now, man. 9-11 truth. Nothing. Nah, sorry, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, but Rod Fang has a a kind of ulterior motives for this because he and Frederson were both in love with the same woman uh, by the name of Hell. And Frederson won out. So Because of his riches and power, I assume. Right. And uh, so she's the mother of uh, you know, Freder, uh the son. So, yeah, so he, he's uh, jealous of uh, Frederson, resents the fact that uh, he was, uh, Frederson was chosen over him. Uh, so, yeah, he's all for destroying Metropolis. Right. And because, and he's a little more, it has a little more foresight here. He knows mm-hmm. that if the workers aren't there running the machines, everything's going to go down. Right. And that that's exactly what happens. And so you end up with this, uh, you know, cataclysmic, uh, destruction of a good portion of the city. And then it's up to, uh, I really don't worry, probably go any further as far as the climax goes. Sure. Because, I mean, you, you've got a few things going on. It's a very dramatic, amazingly sh- done climax where the uh, reservoirs have overrun because the workers aren't at their machines to stop it. Right. The city is mm-hmm. flooding. There's children in jeopardy. You know, hundreds of children that they're trying to rescue. Uh, the mob has turned against Maria. It's just just so much going on there in the last, say, 20 minutes of the movie. Uh, Rotvang breaking down. Uh, lo- losing it mentally, thinking that Maria is hell. Uh, right. Just a, I mean, a lot of shit going on that has to be resolved. Well, we're so, gonna have to, we're gonna have to throw out a spoiler alert in a little bit because I think one of the things that, uh, um, about this movie that I that really, I guess, uh, affected the way I felt about it is that last part. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, we. But we'll but we'll give it a real spoiler alert so nobody can hear it, so nobody can hear it who doesn't want to anyway. Right, and but you know this is a movie that's readily available. It's on archive.org. I'm not sure which cut mm-hmm. of it, but uh, and you said oh, it's sure on Netflix it's the, streaming. What was, the, what was the M version? I can't, you told me what it was. I forgot it. Yeah, there's a we, couple there was versions of Gino M. and the, what was the one that I that I uh, started oh, with the, an M? Oh, nothing. Oh, the Giorgio Moroder cut of Metropolis. Okay, which right that one that one's not. Technically, it was only released on VHS, and it's, the DVD release has been held up because of the rights to the music. But we'll get into different cuts here in a minute. Okay. But uh, but I think it's the 2010 completely restored cut that's available on Netflix, if I'm not mistaken. Oh yeah, and it's and it's instant watch. And I actually watched. Uh, I mean, I don't know if we want to get into the cuts now, but uh, I watched both of these cuts. And uh, the the Kino one that's on, uh, I assume it's the Kino one that's on Netflix, is uh, the quality is so much better than in the other one I watched. Right. Um, You know, plus uh, it had, I guess it had a, the original symphonic soundtrack to it or score to it as opposed to um, what sounded like a Pat Benatar with Queen um, soundtrack. Yeah, and don't don't get me wrong. It was great, but it just did. You know, it did. It, it kind of took out some of the authenticity, in my opinion. You know, with uh, this this battling '80s music really coming through, it just kind of didn't seem to match. 
on a personal note, that was the first version I ever saw was the uh, Giorgio Moroder's cut from 1984, I believe it was. Oh, me too. And I but saw, it just happened to be earlier in the day that I, <laughs> then I watched Kino. <laughs> right. Well, see, Last I, Sunday. <laughs> yeah, see, I, I saw this in 1988. Uh, the Marshall mm-hmm. Library had it on VHS, and I, I'd always heard about Metropolis, but had never mm-hmm. seen it. And right. I was just absolutely blown away by this movie. And it's, it's one of the things, it's one of those movies that really made me go out and seek out other old movies because, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's some, I'd always watched like the Charlie Chaplin stuff growing up as a kid. Mm-hmm. But as far as actual you know, hunting down silent movies and in particular like Fritz Lang, I mean, I would have never seen M if it hadn't been for Metropolis and mm-hmm. just being amazed by, not only the technology, the sets that they pull off. I mean, these things are oh, beautiful, unreal, amazing. Great. Uh, oh yeah, it's, I can't believe it was done in 1927. And you know, we can get into special effects techniques or whatever. I mean, yeah, there's I, just I so was much say, reading there. about some of those. It was for what they did. Like, uh, for instance, I can't remember exactly what it was. Uh, it was something to do with uh, uh, using mirrors to project, um, you know, a, a person into a miniaturized set. It's mm-hmm. like you wouldn't think that would work, but I mean, he did a great job. And it, uh, the movie, without a doubt, is is uh, is gorgeous. I mean, I, I know I keep saying that, but I mean, it's 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 literally one of the, one of the best uh, set design, you know, uh, architecture that they had going on there. You know, and it was all in the future, I guess. Well, it's still the future since it's, yeah, it's sixteen it's, years away from today, but. Yeah, so but, uh, this, that may be where maybe where we're living when I'm sixty. Uh, the process you're referring to, the Schuftan process, where mm-hmm. the you would have a mirror, and then part of the silver was scraped away, so part of it was glass. So the mirror, okay. the mirror is set at a forty-five degree angle to the camera, so the camera's not reflected. But what mm-hmm. is reflected on the silver part is the model, which uh, in this case, uh, it looked like based on the pictures I've seen of like, you know, guys walking around these model sets, mm-hmm. uh, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 12 feet tall. Okay. And then the part that the clear part where the silver was scraped away, the actors are off in the distance behind that. And you can see them through the glass and the camera can see them through the right. glass. So, and, oh, that, yeah, and then there's, I mean, a, that seems pretty primitive now. But, yeah, but they, the fact, they, but the fact, they pulled it off. Yeah, it is an, is entirely seamless. You cannot tell where the actual set begins and the model begins. Right. It, they, you know, it, it all had to be lined up perfectly and the correct amount of silver scraped away from the mirror, and it, the people the right distance away said so the scale is correct. Right. And but that's the thing. Yeah, this was before optical printers. So there was, yeah, that's, there was that would be a painstaking process to get all that, and then to line everything up, and then to deal with the actors and all, all that, and, and you know some of the some of the other in, maybe environmental type deals that you that you can't really control. Oh man, I, that just sounds like a pain in the butt. Yeah, and um, one of the other uh, stop motion animation is used uh, quite prevalently in here. And, oh really? Yeah, the big, you know, sweeping shots. You know, you have these sh- shots of the city with hundreds of cars and planes moving. You know, these mm-hmm. there's 350, 400 little miniature cars that they're actually moving. You know, a millimeter really? at a time. Yeah, all those shots of the city are done with stop motion animation. 
Uh, yeah, I didn't. Wow. Okay. I didn't realize that was stop motion because it was really smooth. Yeah. The, you don't get that kind of jerkiness that you'd expect. I mean, even King Kong, I don't think the right. animation was as quite as smooth, but of course you're dealing with a furry animal there. It's a little harder. Right. And plus you have to make it expressive. Whereas here, you know, you're, you're just moving cars and pl- trains and planes, but at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, tedious fucking process oh man oh, yeah. and even, even more than that you'll see some sh- some scenes like the very first shot you get the like animated metropolis logo and yep. then these um the scenes where it's like these cities these uh buildings kind of inset into the outline of a mountain and there's lights moving over them mm-hmm. that was all hand-drawn they would have wow. to erase a little bit of like erase part of the spotlight and draw huh. back in the spotlight and you know draw in shadow on the other side all the all the animation shots were hand done and again you're you're talking oh, wow. a tremendously tedious process but the the final result is just absolutely breathtaking uh i showed it to a couple guys at work you know just sitting there and i was like i want you to take a look at this and see if you can mm-hmm. tell me how this was fucking done. Seriously, this was done, you know, a hundred, almost a hundred years ago. I was like, yeah, this is, and they just couldn't believe it. And, you know, you talk about the set design and the architecture. Um, I was watching one documentary where they showed, you know, the city of Metropolis and the Tower of Babel, the new Tower of Babel where uh, Frederson lives, and then uh, right. showed that next to a shot from Blade Runner. And I mean, it was just, I mean, the influence there is perfectly obvious. Oh, I bet. Well, I mean, in, as in my opinion, if you know, I mean, since film has been "quote unquote" uh, uh, making homages to older films and blah 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 for years and years, if you're gonna do it, you know, some of these German expression films, period. But especially this one, this is one that uh, deserves to be. Uh, I hate to say copied, but basically copied. Oh yeah, it's in, it's influence its influences are so fucking far reaching. Everything from um, yeah, because this is this is kind of the the last big German expressionist film, and mm-hmm. you know, and then bringing in kind of like the Art Deco designs from uh, God, I can't think of the dude's name that but he he was on a trip to New York with uh, Fritz Lang, but mm-hmm. there was an architect that you know or no, it was a photographer, and you know, uh, supposedly New York in the early twenties was a big inspiration, of course, for Metropolis. And you can kind of see that, you know, the sure. uh, was the Chrysler building kind of looks like one of the buildings there, you know, the design of the robot. If you're, you know, a star Wars geek, you know, you can see where the design of the robot, you look at some of the early uh, concept sketches for C3PO. I mean, it's, you know, and it's that, right and there. And that uh, robot on uh, Buck Rogers. The robot on Buck Rogers. Exactly. Then you've got, um, there was a Madonna video that kind of paid homage. I think it was Respect Yourself. You know, had that same kind of theme going. I'm, I'm serious. Uh, you just course, failed a, a gay test. Uh, like I said, I just watched a documentary, so it was it was there. Okay. Okay. It wasn't like oh oh yes, I remember you know when I was in my <laughs> Madonna phase that this video. No, sure. I, I'd never mm-hmm. fucking seen it. Mm-hmm. But but the Queen video, if you want to talk about it, <laughs> the the Queen video for Radio Gaga, I had seen, and of course that's uh, very much inspired by Metropolis. Ironically, I wouldn't really think that was a gay test because Queen rocks. They will rock but you, whatever. And they and and they have no problem telling you that they will rock you. <laughs> well, and I believe them. 
they, well, yeah, they, they look going. like a bunch of nice boys. Yeah, just just good, clean-cut, modest British folk. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely, with mustaches. Anyhow, um, so, yeah, I mean, now, okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the negatives. Um, okay. And I hope you don't smack me in the balls or anything because, um, well, I actually, I can't believe I said that. Anyway, um, you can probably here's, do it here's <laughs> sick. Here's kind of uh, my my thought about this. When I go to when I went to watch this, there were a bunch of people that said, "Oh my gosh, this story is unbelievably good." You know, mm-hmm. and I mean, you talked about you talked about how you know there was a lot of religious imagery and stuff like that, and you know, I picked up on all that stuff. I mean, and there was even some more where uh, you know a guy. Uh, switched places with, uh, you know, free, free, what was his name? Frieden, Frieder? Freider. Anyway, Freider. And, uh, you know, he goes into the city and he's, he's supposed to, you know, go meet some other guy. But he, you know, halfway through, he gets, uh, he gets distracted in the temptations of the world. He, you know, he ends up going and hanging out at, uh, you know, basically what is the red light district? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's some more of the, you know, the, the temptation or whatever. Um, you know, and I, I saw that. But in here, and here's the spoiler. But basically, to me, well, even after everybody told me how great the story is, how how I'm going to be blown away at the end because of what a what a you know just what a mind blowing story this is. It turned out that it was just basically a um, just a creation of a union. You know, basically the mediator was to. Uh, hold the collective bargaining for the workers and the, you know, and the employer <laughs> stuff like that. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know. It, I mean, the industrial revolution and all that stuff had started years before this. And, you know, and this is during a, a time when, I, when there was a lot of, uh, you know, workers' rights deals going on, you know, and issues. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of it, you know, even in Britain had already, you know, they'd already had some kind of a union, a, a trade unions, things like that. But am I wrong in thinking that this basically was just kind of a, a big long story about how um, unions got set up? I don't know specifically that we're talking about labor unions here. I guess you could. Uh, I mean, I could see where oh, you, dude, you, you that's could see what that. this is. Are, that's yeah, no, what, no, what I, I can I can see where you can read that into it. Um, what do you mean where I can read it into it? You have you have the employers, you have the workers. The workers need rights. They need someone to take their demands or their requests to the to the uh, you know the employers, you know, and so mm-hmm. you have a mediator. I mean, I could see how you could see that. Oh, th- th- this uh, that uh, Frider is the is is Christ. He's the mediator. He will he will you know whatever, um, you know. But to me, it was just like oh, they they created a union and, well, and uh, now they're gonna talk. Well, certainly, it's, uh, am I am I simplifying it too much? I, I maybe no, no, no. I I mean, I I can see that. Um, and there was there was a lot. I mean, a lot of the criticism of this movie at the same time. You know, you you know, we're just um, what ten years after the Russian Revolution. You know, okay. and Marxism is on that in that side of the world, and right. that's that's the way I saw it. Was not that the workers need to overthrow the way Marx would have you know. Right, the, the way the Bolshevik res- revolution that take on it, but rather that there was a middle ground between. Oh yeah, and that they were willing to work together. Right, you know, and which which is a union. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. 
That's that's. Uh, I know. That's you're sorry. Sorry. I, I I just I don't know. I I can't believe, I can't tell you how bummed I was though that, that at the end of this movie that that's what it turned out to be, and it was like you know I mean it was all dramatic and it was you know but and see, it was to, uh, to, it, could, it could be looked at as you know moving but I was just like oh shit. Yeah, really? well, actually, yeah. I mean, well, first, first off, the very first frame of the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- this is essentially a fable, and you know, you are told oh, you are you are told the moral before you even get into the movie. Between the oh, head and the yeah, heart, and there, you, you there knew must, the whole story. Yes. Yeah, they're you, looking for this mediator. I mean, even to even to Fritz Lang, you know mm. his his wife wrote this, and mm. it, it, he said a lot of the the sentimentality came from her and he really didn't like it himself. You know, oh, really? he, so he, he made it gorgeous though. I mean, did oh, a great job. yeah. And it, you know, this, this is a movie I don't watch for the resolution because I, as, I as watched this movie for the journey. Art, it is perfect. Almost, you know, it is one of the best things I've ever looked at. I don't, but I, I was, I was ready to be moved, man. People, you know, I, that, that was the, that was the, uh, the impression that I got that, that man, when you get to the end of this, it will you'll, your your mind will be opened. I'm just like, holy shit! No, I, I'm with you there. There was there was nothing nothing to me that was so revolutionary or a concept that wow, I have to wrap my head around this. It was right. just like okay, you know, I, that's where this whole movie was going. Uh, mm-hmm. To me, uh, to me, I watch it for the journey. I mean, it's just such an amazing journey you take through the, you know, through these workers with the gigantic machines, these amazing well, and just skyscrapers. How awesome it all was. And I mean, it was, it was on such a huge scale. You know, yeah. it just and, looked so sweeping and so giant, and it was epic. It truly was. And I read somewhere that this movie, well, it was the most expensive movie produced, you know, at the time. Uh, I sure. think nineteen ninety seven dollars was two hundred. It would have been a two hundred million dollar movie, uh, somewhere in the or, um, somewhere in the neighborhood or, uh, of like five million rice say, marks or an at the eight time. Acre and a half of sugar beets. Three hectares. I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I'm trying. I'm trying now that our listeners are on the confectionery scale. I just want. I'm, I'm trying yeah. to keep them abreast. Yeah, because yeah, you don't want to confuse them by throwing in more than one system. So yeah. But yeah, we're talking a shitload of fucking sugar. <laughs> I don't know. Do you do you want to get into like the the history and the restoration and all that shit? Because I, I find sure, it a pretty fascinating. Bit. I mean, I think it, I think it bears mentioning, especially since uh, you know after watching those two cuts, the, the 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 new one was. I mean, it was it was head and shoulders above the. Uh, I can't remember the the the, the M word one. Marauder. I mean, it was it was literally you know. Not only did it look better, however, there were some confusing parts where you just kind of – it seemed like you just kind of had to make assumptions in the, you know, in the 80s version mm-hmm. and uh, that were explained further you know, in the Kino version, which you know, it was just kind of like it, uh, it, it tied up some loose ends. It added a little bit of a story to some of the, um, uh, some of the parts that you – thought that they like for instance uh it really you know the guy who uh, uh we were, i was talking about how he switched places with frider mm-hmm. and uh it, it took him it took him a whole nother plot you know line and it really fleshed him out it, it, otherwise it would you know all he was was some dick that didn't you know go meet up with uh with uh what's his name uh yeah. jehoshaphat 
Right. But no, I, and the thing is, is yeah, it's 20 minutes longer, but in my opinion, it's, it's well worth sitting through an extra 20 minutes to kind of have all those, uh, you know, extra details and, you know, it's just a smoother story in my opinion. Yeah. And what really surprised me, what was how much of the action was cut out of like the, the final act, you know, because, oh, right. because it's, it's, you can tell where like this newest footage because it, it was, you know, in pretty poor shape. A little, so there, there's a definite, yeah. yeah, there's a definite uh, switching quality. So you can tell which scenes were put back in just, you know, this past two years. And well, and it was cool to get to get that uh, that flag saying, "Oh, by the way, this is new stuff." You know, I mean, obviously they didn't do it on purpose, but mm-hmm. it was good to see that, so you could basically see what you missed in in the other version. Yeah, absolutely. But here's here's what happened, and and then try to keep this brief. Uh, Nineteen twenty seven, the movie premieres at a length of about two and a half hours. Not well received. It's pulled from distribution and cut down to about 90 minutes. Uh, in America, there's a completely different cut. Again, about 90 minutes. But they cut out the whole subplot with uh, uh, rivalry, over, rivalry over hell. That's completely, oh, okay. cut, that's completely really? cut out. So, wow. so Rotvang is basically just some mad scientist that the guy goes to. There's no, there's no backstory there anymore. Let's see what else, all the stuff with uh one one eight one one. That's the guy that takes the right. uh, freighter's place, going off on his little adventure. All that's cut out. A lot of the stuff mm-hmm. with uh Josephat, like uh, for instance, the one of uh, Freighterson's min- minions tries to bribe Josephat into betraying Freighter. All that stuff right. was cut out. A lot of the action in the final set was cut out. So we're talking, you know, an entire hour of footage pulled out of this thing. Um, and the German version pretty much went along with the American version. And ag- mm. again, didn't set the world on fire because now the movie was even, now the movie was fucking confusing, uh, kind of right. despite all the fucking beauty of it, the the story didn't really set the world on fire. And it pretty much destroyed the movie company because they put all this money and effort into really? this. And uh, yeah, and then the movie bombs. So nobody thinks much about it. World War II happens, and the Russians end up with the German copy. But one thing the Germans did, they edited, when they made the edit down to 90-some minutes, they actually used the original negative and tossed all the extra footage. Really? Yes. So for, (laughs) for years and years and years, all we had was the American print, and, you know, other countries had prints. Uh, uh, Argentina had their print. Chile had their print. I think Australia and New Zealand even had two com- two separate prints. So all these different countries, you know, different re-edited the movie for their own cultures. Hmm. Um, but the actual, the German version, what was left of it, it was in the hands of the Russians. And in, I guess it was in the 70s, in the I think about 74, they started trying to negotiate almost like a prisoner exchange to get Metropolis back. Yeah, so they had some Russian films and, you know, some, they had some Russian films that were of cultural significance. The Russians had some German mm-hmm. films that were of cultural significance. So they worked out this exchange, you know, we'll trade you even for uh, black and white stock. 
uh, color stock, right. you know, 10 to one or something, you know, is this huh. whole big elaborate negotiation. And then they got together and, you know, tried to get a version of Metropolis together. And Marauder actually, we have to, despite the fact that he put like this eighties pop synth soundtrack to it, mm-hmm. his fascination with the movie was, was really key to, he's the one that said, okay, I want to put the story back the way it used to be. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Well, so- and, and really his, his cut isn't Uber. So Uber confusing that you don't know what's going on. You do, but little things here and there are just taken out. And I think, you know, and, you, and I had to make some assumptions and I had to kind of, uh, you know, uh, for example, when uh, Maria struggles with uh, Rotbang, you know, because uh, she's taken up to his, his lab or whatever. Uh, basically, in, uh, in the Marauder version, it said she struggled and got away, you yeah. know, real quick. But in the Kino version, Frider showed up, has a rumble with Rot Bang, and uh, Maria takes off while they're fighting. So, I mean, you know, just things like that. Yeah, and, and that was just simply because the footage, nobody knew where it was. Eventually, they got, to, they got enough people together with 35-millimeter prints, and... You know, the Marauder version, it kind of split everybody in the middle, but it generated the mm-hmm. fucking interest that was needed in the public mm-hmm. eye to warrant getting all these versions of Metropolis together and trying to reconstruct it. So in 2001, they managed to come up with a two-hour cut. And they said, yeah, this yeah. is the definitive cut. We've scoured the world looking for Prince of Metropolis. This is it. Then we painstakingly restored it. We've used the yeah. best digital technology We've done everything we can to make this movie perfect. What happens in the 80s, this a chance conversation. This guy who's really a film enthusiast, he's talking to another guy that uh, used to be a projectionist in Argentina. He says, hey, I saw Metropolis. This was an amazing movie. This, you know, But they put this pop soundtrack. And this old man says, yeah, I remember in 1959, we screened Metropolis here. And... I, the projector was broke and I had to sit, sit there with my fucking finger on, on the film gate for two and a half hours. Oh, really? He remembered it distinctly because of that. So the guy tells his wife about his wife is also a film enthusiast. He said, yeah, he, this guy back in you, he said 1959, it was a two and a half hour movie. And the woman's like, you've got to be kidding me because you know, that doesn't exist. Right. He's either mistaken, but she ended up getting a job at the archive that had that print. Really? And she remembered this conversation she had and decided to go check it out. And when she did, she discovered that, yes, they did, in fact, have a nearly complete 16 millimeter print. Okay. Of Metropolis. And they contacted the Germans and the German, the Murnau Foundation that owns the, uh, the rights to the restored version mm-hmm. and said, you know, Hey, I've got the two and a half hour cut. I've got this scene, this scene, this scene, all this shit you're missing. And they were like 16 millimeter. Who gives a fuck? You know, we've got our 35 millimeter pristine print that, and they were like, right. no, do you, do you realize? I don't think you realize what we have here and got a bunch of people involved and transferred it to DVD, ended up flying over to Germany. And when they screened it and saw you know exactly how much was cut out once they saw it for themselves they were like yeah we've got to reassemble this movie as best as possible 
Is that what this Kino is? And that's what the 2010 Kino release that came out on, I think it was November 16th. Very uh, cool. This is probably as close as we're going to come. We're missing, I think, six minutes from the original German cut. And what's also interesting is most of the script has disappeared. I may be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure I saw something where they don't actually have the script anymore. They have the book, the novelization, but mm -hmm. what they had to go on was the film score. They did have a copy of the film score, and they had a copy of the censor card, which lists all of these, the contents of all the inner titles. Mm -hmm. So they knew what every card said. Then the, the score has the music cues. Okay, you know this is where we need to be when this particular title card comes right. up. Right. So by that, they were able to adjust the timing uh, and assemble everything put it back with the original score. And what you have is just like one of the greatest finds in film history. And it, it almost didn't happen. So you, you know, it's just a lot of coincidences that uh, we've been able to fucking get this piece of art back. Well, and, and, and I think that's, that's exactly what it is. I mean, even though I bitched about the, the ending, watching this movie, like you said, for the journey is, is definitely worth it. And, you know, I mean, it's definitely one of a kind. I mean, there's, there's really, even, even the things that have kind of copied from this that I've seen, you know, like that uh, don't really hold a candle to, to, in my pain to this. And I don't know, maybe I'm a little crazy there, but this is one of, this is one of the, the, uh, the most beautiful movies that I've seen. Yeah. Anyway, besides, um, uh, besides porn, <laughs> and but yeah anyway that's a different yeah, kind and documentaries about crickets <laughs> of course because they're, they're giant balls um you know how we've gone on about this movie for a little while and uh and we could probably go I, on for quite a while because i i was actually going to say well and this isn't necessarily about the movie this is about i mean what i want to do is finish talking about the movie but then i want to bring up uh, uh kind of a um something that relates but isn't exactly about this movie. So okay, uh, sure. let's finish up talking about the movie. Well, um, you got anything else? What, what is, well, yeah. I mean, like I said, we could talk about this movie forever. It's one of those movies, it's like Star Wars or Blade Runner. The people that get into <laughs> it, I mean, you just fucking get into it and you want to find out right. every little bit and nuance of it. And, you know, <laughs> that that's where I've been since 1988 is – you know, just so enthusiastic about this film. Time I see something about M, or, or I'm sorry, Metropolis. You see an article on the internet, Metropolis. You just go there and find out what's what else you know could possibly be happening with it. I mean, there's just so much about Fritz Lang. Um, he hated the fact that the Nazis liked this movie, and and Fritz Lang, you know, his movies are a lot of these are long. You know, two and okay. a half hours for this one. Uh, M pushes two hours. Mm -hmm. Um, I have one, uh, the, t Dr. Mabuse, the gambler, four and a half hour silent movie. Jesus priest. And I haven't even begun to fucking tackle that one. Uh, he did die Nebelungen, which is, you know, Norse mythology. Uh, I think each part okay. is somewhere around two and a half hours. And, but, vi but visually the, I mean, if you're, if you're impressed with the visuals of Metropolis, uh, it's kind of the other going the other way. It's a very much a uh, a fantastical world that he creates. Yeah, it's definitely okay. worth checking out if you've got you know, five six hours to fucking do so. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I hated the fact that the Nazis liked his movies. 
And there, there's a, a story that's you know kind of been debated about whether or not what's his name Goebbels is that was that his name that was yeah that was the propaganda minister for the Nazis Goebbels Goebbels yeah fuck him but anyway yeah supposedly <laughs> he he wanted he wanted uh, Fritz Lang to head up this uh, wing of the fucking you know, German film really. And uh, instead, uh, Fritz Lang being half Jewish defected. There, there's a really interesting story uh, about that whole thing, but it turns out it's probably bullshit. So I'm not going to get into it. His wife actually <laughs> did join the Nazi party, uh, Thea von Harbo. Uh, his co-writer on all these movies up, you know, up to this point, she was integral in his movie making process. She joined the Nazi party and, uh, you know, he divorced her. Uh, a lot of these people, Carl Fruin, you know, of course he went to Hollywood. Right. Nazis, Nazis really fuck shit up. Yeah. It, it, I mean, not, that, I mean, aside, aside, aside from the obvious, <laughs> they fucked up the film industry too. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's just so much we could talk about it, but, uh, I mean, it's, it's just a movie you have to see for yourself and, you know, just the fact. I mean, it's amazing looking, and the fact that they had to do all this stuff in camera uh, mm-hmm. just makes it that much more of an accomplishment. Uh, it's cinematographer's just, dream. Yeah, it's just fucking pure genius from start to finish. A little bit uh, overly sentimental, but uh, yeah, you can forgive it five seconds of uh, uh, sugary crap for uh, this is this is the kind of movie I want to get stills from and and get posters from it and put. It- I'm on my walls, but uh, I want to make a uh, I want to make a non-union ending. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I know. I know. I'm a I'm yeah. a philistine. I'm evil. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Well. Well. I don't. I don't. I don't think most people realize that the whole ending of the movie was about the negotiation of uh, federal minimum wage. So, and a forty-hour <laughs> workweek. <laughs> Uh, that, that's that's an aspect exactly. that is that has passed over critics for generations now. <laughs> oh, you know what? It's sad when I when I can figure that out. Come on, people, where have you been? Oh, I'm just teasing. Yeah. But uh, okay, so um, I, I mean, we're we're kind of going long on this, but I was reading something that uh, that wasn't necessarily uh, singling this movie out or anything like that, but it was about it was more about the whole German expressionism thing. About how there was a, let's see, a German film critic who was, uh, his name was Krakauer, who basically said that, uh, looked at this whole movement of German expressionism and things like that, and uh, said that it was integral in, um, for the Nazis because of their, you know, of, of people's, Oh, acquiescence over time uh, because of these movies were so based on formalism and, and not real realism that they subverted reality and kind of took people's minds off of what's really going on in the world. Um, I mean, and you know, I hadn't, I hadn't ever thought of that as, as far as uh, these films go. But uh, before I go any further, uh, I mean, what do, you, what do you think about that idea? Yeah, the Nazis taking power had nothing to do with the Great Depression that was going on in Germany at the time where it took... Well, a- no, well, no, 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 listen. <laughs> yeah. 
Listen, it's I mean, not it he's he's not claiming that this is the reason for Nazism. He's not claiming for that, but what he's saying is is that all these things uh let me there was actually uh I, I it was a book called Dark Dreams. It was written by a guy named Charles Derry and the book and the book actually itself is is just it's about horror movies mm-hmm. and uh Yeah, I think I have a copy of that. Trends. And, and, you know, it's funny because I actually got the new version where he talks about uh, – he, he wrote uh, a book called uh, Dark Dreams in 1977, and he wrote a follow-up uh, fairly recently, I think in 2009. He actually put them together in one book, and I started reading it. And, is, is, that uh, the one that, you know, is that the one that's labeled like 2.0? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Okay, yeah, I, I do have that. Well, did, did you read it? Have you read it or anything like that yet? I've flipped through it, but no, I haven't like actually delved into it in any depth. <laughs> so I started reading it, and this guy is – I mean, and, and there's a lot about what he had to write about that was really stupid. Uh, he, I mean, he tends to paint with broad strokes. Uh, he won't talk about movies that are, that, that are directed video. I mean, the, the book that the, – the main book that I'm reading right now came from 1977, but he did a big foreword you know, kind of an introduction actually, uh, you know, to it. And he's talking about, Oh, how it's not worth talking to, uh, about movies that were direct to video. And he dismisses all modern horror as simply a product, you know, a, a product to sell to the young people. And that there's just this, uh, it's not art, it's product. And, you know, and that's all new stuff in he, you know, unlike the old stuff. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, well, no offense, but a lot, no, the, a lot of those movies, you know, back in the, you know, back in the day were made just to put out to, uh, you know, to, to, to hurry and make your money and get off. I mean, and, and don't want to admit that it's true. You know, a yeah, lot of Val movie, Luton, movie. some of it, you know, and, and some of what's the William Castle, even, you know, the idea that movies used to be art. The fact of the matter is the movie industry has always been an industry. Now you have artists. You have artists working in this industry, and occasionally, sure. some great things come from it. Absolutely, and you know, and it was just this guy's but, arrogant tone. He was very dismissive of of anything new, anything post, you know, nineteen eighty or nineteen seventy something. That that kind of attitude. I mean, yeah, I I have I, I did I have moments I where I feel that way. It just got irritating yeah i i definitely have my my moments like watching particular movies or i'll run into a string of movies where it's like oh my god am i ever going to see another decent movie again right but that i mean that's the way that's the way it's always been see and and doing doing the classics thing i mean it's it's a lot easier because yeah these movies have you know stood the test of time we we know pretty much there's there's a reason why they're still out there versus you know, we don't have that perspective of time, you know, the passage of time to tell us you know, what from today. But, you know, certainly you know, one of the movies we talked about, uh, Root Rot and Corey and I, Shaun of the Dead, 10, 15 years mm-hmm. from now, I'm still going to be watching that movie. Oh, absolutely. You know, so, the, I mean, there there's great stuff coming out. There's a, a Run, Bitch, Run uh, is like one oh, of I my new it's one of my new favorites. It's it's a throwback to like the seventies exploitation, right? But it's very well done, and as far as as far as I know, it's direct to video. Oh yeah, and it, it, you know, in you know, in in all that stuff was kind of he talked about that in the introduction, and when I started getting into the to the actual you know the book that he wrote in nineteen seventy seven, it was very pedantic, and there were it was just achingly thorough. 
you know, there's so many mundane details that it, that it was just so hard for me to take. Yeah, kind of like you a know, me talk. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but this is the one thing out of that that I took, you know, somewhat interesting. Uh, let's see. Let me, let me just read it because, I mean, sure. we're, we're already off on this tangent. He said, uh, the influential classic history of German cinema uh, – a guy named Siegfried Krakauer wrote it. He disapproved of so many of the films that he discussed, seeing them as harbingers of the German acquiescence by the approaching Nazi state. Uh, Krakauer's argument that a society embracing formalism over realism is a sign that society is ignoring its own political and social realities. Um, you know, and the shadows painted on the floors and the walls of the set in uh, the doctor, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, was an attempt by its filmmakers to subvert even the the the, the realist physics you know, a property of light. And it was, you know, somehow uh, this divergent uh, or this deviation, um, you know, it, you know, the thing is, is I see that and I'm like, wow, well, that's pretty, that's pretty uh, harsh, you know I mean? Because mm-hmm. I mean, here it's art. I mean, what, what you don't want, you don't want anybody, any art to be shown because it might take their minds off of the shit that's going on around people for a while. Um, but basically this, this guy, Krakauer, he, he, he ends up making a fairly compelling argument. I don't necessarily believe it, but uh, um, I, don't, I don't know. And I, I thought that was one thing that was interesting. And since we've been talking a lot about these um, German expressionist movies, I, you know, to me, they seem so, they, like I said, they just seem like art. But I wanted to kind of get your take on that. Well, yeah, if it hadn't been for Lord of the Rings, we wouldn't be in Iraq right now. Son of a bitch. That, Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, because no, I, you know we were we were all thinking about Middle Earth and uh, Harry Potter. I think might be part of the blame. That's why the Brits fucking joined us. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I mean, are, I don't I don't want to undervalue well, the power of the power of good art. Um, certainly, but certainly, all right, Picasso is. Not you know his stuff is not realistic you know his most popular stuff, but you know right. his stuff you know he did so many works that were a statement against what was going on politically. You know, no, absolutely. His, his stuff was you know you could say okay was it a distraction from the uh, the Spanish Civil War? No, it was draw it, his attempt to draw attention to the Spanish Civil War. Right. And certainly mm-hmm. that's what you know some of his best pieces are known as this great statement against what was going on. Um as as far as art being a distraction, I don't well, know. I, I mean, mean it's it cer- it certainly it certainly makes for a compelling debate, but you know, well, and let's, and let's say right now where I mean we have so many distractions that it's easy to get caught up in them. You oh. know, but I think that I and, don't think that, that's that, inherently the arts the arts fault. You know. I, I think it's obviously it's the it's the it's society's fault that they're allowing themselves to fall into it, personal responsibility and all that bullshit. But well, that's, I don't, but you know, that's, I find but, it but hard see, that's where you and I personally believe. fall because you and I are both very big advocates of personal responsibility. Absolutely, without a doubt. And and it's so you know yeah if you allow yourself because I mean we've heard this we hear this argument all the fucking time you know that we're so bombarded by. Media, it's so easy to get distracted. But at the same time, we're Absolutely. also bombarded by so much information that if we're willing to take the time to, you know, be aware, then mm-hmm. you know it's it's a personal thing. 
Absolutely. And it's, I mean, it, it's you, easy to fall into that trap, but I just have a, I just have a hard time thinking that that's a valid argument, but I was, I was, I'm just hoping just, I mean, just because of the, just because of, I mean, the formalism in, in, in it's, it's, I don't think it's a stance against realism. I just think it's a way of expressing yourself, yeah. you know? And, I don't. I, I. I don't know. I have. I don't. I can't see it leading to some uh, brave new world uh, future. You know, some Aldous Huxley. You know, these these pieces of art are the soma that people are taking to forget about the world and but, to push their pleasure centers and whatever. I don't know. Yeah, but Especially the, at the same time, we, we. Yeah, well, but but you got to consider what's going on in Germany. How bad shit was after World War One. I. I mean. Well, and that's what. I, that, you know, that's so, true. I mean, that's that's something that you know, looking back a hundred years, you know, we we have no real frame of reference. You know, we don't. You no, know, and, I can, and that's you, true. My grandmother might have be able to you know tell you something about that. They but, might be but dying not me. for a distraction, <laughs> right? Because yeah, exactly. But whether or not that was it, you know, I just don't have the I just don't have the frame of reference. Just like you were saying, there there will always be a place for art. You know, I guess it depends on what people do, but I mean, uh, what people consider to be art is what I meant to say. But, uh, you know, and I, I, I could, I can see the argument against it. I just, I don't know. I, I, I just have a hard time believing that, uh, even if it was, uh, even if it was done inadvertently that, that, I don't know, I, I just kind of, it would bum me out that all this, this great art in these, in these wonderful films that we've watched, you know, are actual you know, trying to lull people away from what's important. But anyway, whatever. Well, certainly, I don't think it was in, uh, intentional on the part of any of these artists. No, especially I, especially no, when you look at how many of them had the fucking defect after, you know. <laughs> right. No, I, I by the way, I, I quit reading that book. It just got so boring that but, and, I could not deal with it anymore. <laughs> Yeah, but at the at the same time, though, I mean, and when we start talking about Peter Lorre and M, you know, the Nazi film, the Nazi film industry in the '30s was a very powerful tool, and it shaped a lot of fucking people's perceptions of what. Absolutely. Um, and for instance, the scene that we'll get to with uh, uh, Peter Lorre when you know he has his confrontation with the hoods towards the end of the movie, uh, mm-hmm. that scene was pulled from M. And stuck in a movie, I believe it was called The Eternal Jew, as as to show the German people an example of how Jews are deviant. Like, for instance, take this Jewish guy, Peter Lorre, you know, mm-hmm. he, here he is, you know, portraying this deviant killer and he's, you know, trying to claim that it's not his fault. This is the way the Jews are. And, you know, this is what right. was being shoved in people's faces in Germany. And a lot of them fucking bought it. So, you know, maybe there might, there might be a little something to that argument, but I think there's so many, so many fucking factors involved that you can't point to one thing. Well, I agree. I agree. But, you. you know, at the same time, you can't discount, discount the power of, uh, the power of fucking art. But, um, you want to talk about him? Sure. Let's, uh, let's do it. Uh, oh, we're going a little long. I need to take Are a we? leak. Let's take a break. Is that all right? Yeah. Let's take a break and, uh, <laughs> okay. we'll go piss. I'm not going to, I'm not going to. All right, so right we'll, we'll take a break and come right back and uh, talk about some M. You ever feel cheated? Well, I have. Normally when you do a promo like this, you're supposed to sit there and suck the shit out of yourself to tell people how great your show is and what you talk about and everything like that. I don't like doing these fucking things, but I've been pushed to do it. 
And if you don't know who I am, my name's Vaughn, and I run the podcast Motion Picture Massacre, and glad to fucking meet you. Every week or whenever the hell I have time to do a show, I review stuff that I like, stuff that sits on my walls, maybe comes in through my Netflix account, horror movies, cult movies, fucking shitty at B movies, Italian action films, Japanese films, fucking anime, Ralph Bashke films, kid, you know, porno, I don't give a crap, whatever you want to talk about. Whatever I feel like talking about, that's better. You know, if you want to check it out, it's motionpicturemassacre.com. All right, now that our bladders are empty, we are ready to talk about the movie In, uh, which came out in 1931. Uh, Basically, this movie is, uh, you know how I said I, I feel strongly about both these movies? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we talked a little bit about that. Uh, I think I got my all my views out on uh, uh, Metropolis and what I liked and what I disliked, but I felt very strongly about them all. Um, now, M, this is a little bit different. It's not a silent film. Uh, it came out in only, what, uh, four years after uh, Metropolis did in 1931. However, it was, it, it uh, you know, of course, it was in German, so I still had to read subtitles, which is, listen, I'm not complaining. It just came out wrong. Um, you know, it, it's, 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 it's a whole, <laughs> it's a whole different kind of movie. This basically takes place in a German city, which is uh, supposedly, uh, I, mean, I, I assumed it was Berlin, but uh, it, it, I don't think it really matters what uh, city this takes place in. Um, what happens is there is a child murderer going around, and uh, I don't know was it was it uh, implied that uh, he was a pedophile or anything like that? I think, the, or was yeah, it just some I, child murderer? I think I don't know. This day and age, it's so as me and as many times as I've seen this, uh, one of the things we were talking about before we got on air was about the Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, right. even though it was never said Freddie was a child molester, uh-huh. I always had it in my mind. And I think it's the same thing with this one. You just, well, I mean, also because this, because that's I think that's just because what, that's what we're bombarded with. However, I you know I thought that because of uh, Peter Laurie who plays this uh, child killer, um, it, he kind of displays some habits that I assume some kind of a pedophile would have, like like uh, I, I don't know, just the, his creepy. Facial expressions, because uh, every pedophile, of course, is creepy. But I mean, more like he would, you know, he would, would be nice to the kids. He would, you know, kidnap the kids uh, by giving them candy and whatnot. And I, I don't know. You're right. Now that I say that out loud, it doesn't seem like that necessarily means but, he's a pedophile. But I assumed he was. Well, and well, and but they they kind of hint. I think um, because they never explicitly come out and tell you a whole lot. I mean, right. as a matter of fact, during one of the briefings, he you know he says, "Well, we've all we all know what you know happened to these children, right? You know, and just really, I mean, the whole thing is left up to our imaginations, and and certainly exactly. in this day and age, we hear so many fucking tragic stories about you know children being abducted and and uh, abused and murdered, and you know even fucking family members doing it. You know, it's right. I mean, we just see so much of it. I think it's always in our mind that." You know, and certainly Fritz Lang ima- lets us imagine the worst possible scenario in this fucking. Well, movie. and Peter Laurie did such a great job of portraying oh this guy that is so off. I mean, it's just a little bit off, you know, in his in his mannerisms, in his facial expressions, and things like that. This guy scared me, man. I mean, th- th- he 
he convinced me that uh, he was what he was, what his character was. So he he was, in my opinion, I mean, this is kind of the epitome of uh, the playing the the creepy child killer molester type of guy. I mean, wouldn't wouldn't you say? I, th- I oh, for me, that was and one of the creepiest parts of this movie. Yeah, and and for years that haunted Peter Lorre. I mean, as magnificent as his performance was. It was one of those, you know, double-edged swords where people actually thought he was a fucking child killer in Dude, real life you know, because I he, uh, I mean, he was just so fucking riveting in this performance. You know, we've talked about this several times. You know, you put the right actor in the right role with the right director. It's fucking right. magic. And this is certainly the case here. Uh, fuck Peter Lorre, I mean, gives the performance of a lifetime. And this was, I mean, one of, I think this was his first starring role. Really? Yeah. Wow. As well as uh, Fritz Lang's first sound film. Uh, Fritz Lang did not like the idea of you know the sound era, and he even he even yeah. said that one of like you know his failings as a director, you know, moving into this era, he said you know that he wished he had the same uh, auditory gift that he had as far you know visually and, that he could oh, match really? match that. But I think I think. He does so many things in this movie for it to be the first so- first sound movie. And so early in, well, 31, this was pretty much the end of the silent era. The last silent movie would come out in 1931. Mm-hmm. And and you look at the horror movies like, wish I could put my finger on a, a real example. But for the most part, what he does with this movie is he disconnects sound from the scene. He does. Which, you know, is kind of, I mean, it's almost unheard of. There there were people doing cross-cutting, you know, even in the silent era, era with, uh, you know, Griffith and Birth of a Nation. He does amazing things with sounds. You're, the dialogue is your cue to, like, what the next location is going to be. As a matter of fact, sometimes the dialogue overlaps with the uh, change of the scene. And it's done to great storytelling effect where, for instance, you have a gang of criminals discussing what to do about the murderer. And it's cross-cutting with the conversation that the police are having about what they're going to do about the murderer. And it's so seamlessly done. And you can see the parallels between these two completely separate worlds when faced with a common threat. (laughs) You know what that scene reminded me of? It reminded me of another classic scene where Bill and Ted and Bill and Ted's bogus journey were, were uh, proposing to their to the princesses, and uh, they were basically cutting back and forth, you know, kind of having the same conversation. I can't believe they ripped that off Bill and Ted's bogus journey. Yeah, it, it's. But uh, but no, I mean, did you notice also that there wasn't much of a score? And there would be scenes in this where, I mean, there there wouldn't be any sound. And, I mean, you'd see people running around, and but you wouldn't hear their footsteps or anything like that. Um, it's I mean, and, there were a couple of times when I actually thought, I'm like, holy shit, did my stereo turn off? What, you know, what's going on? I haven't heard anything. And all of a sudden, you know, I'd start to hear uh, um, Peter Lorre whistling uh, the, 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 what was it, uh, in the Hall of the Mountain, Mountain King. King. Yeah. 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 Yeah, uh, two thirds. Yeah, one third of this movie is silent, and that that was part part of it was a cost cutting measure because the you know, this equipment was still new, but at right. the but at the same, Lang picks the right scenes to go silent on. And, I agree. 
and it, because, I mean, because it creates this kind of eerie. Quite know what's going on. Yeah, it, it, yep. and you you just have so much. Well, let's let's hit the plot because the plot is really simple. Okay. You've got a child murderer oh, yeah. running around. Uh, the police are cracking down. You know, they're on every block. They're raiding all these clubs uh, yeah. where the criminals hang out. They're disrupting the criminal trade, and the criminals are like, "We're not murderers. We're just pickpockets and safe crackers and shit." You know, right. but it's affecting our bottom line. So we need to go out and do something, and we will be the ones to stop the the uh, murderer. And well, the, yeah, they've been waiting for a long time for the police to get their shit together, you know, and, and catch them. But they just came to a point where they're like, listen, our coffers are empty, man. If we don't go out and get this guy ourselves, we're going to be screwed. Yeah, and they do just that and uh, the, have kind of a kangaroo court for the uh, child killer. And that's when we see, God, just this brilliant fucking performance by uh, Peter Lorre. Mm-hmm. But throughout this movie, there's there's just so much going on. And a lot of times, like, I'll listen to movie commentaries, and I'll be like, really, you know, these, these pretentious film ex- historians. And they're, like, talking about this symbol and that symbol. And I'm like, really? Come on. Are you, you're stretching. Right. Then you hear stories about Fritz Lang and how meticulous he was. Like, for instance, there's the one scene in the club where they show the empty ashtray. Mm-hmm. He sat there and smoked a cigar and kept flicking ashes into it until it was just right. Really? Because he wanted it to look a certain way and then had crew members bring in cigarette butts just so that one ashtray which was the you know the center of the shot looked right. right so a lot of the stuff that you know i've heard about this movie i can kind of buy into it for instance the, uh, you'll see a lot of times there's these circles of men and one person is either brought out of that circle or brought into it i don't even know what the fuck it's supposed to mean but it happens over and over so you see these visual themes uh the very first shot with the uh the children playing the game where she's spinning around and right. you, and there's this morbid kind of uh, not like, you know, hot, but one potato, two potato, three potato, four. It's yeah. like, you know, the murder's coming to get you and now you're out. And, it's, and right, but, right. but it, she's moving like a clock and that was, you know, Fritz Lang's, you know, there's a lot of things and then you'll hear a cuckoo clock later on in the next scene. And there's all these little things pointing to clocks, you know, to get it in your head that, you know, time is time is of the essence here. Right. You know, just these little visual cues that are almost subliminal. You know, and we talked about it with, uh, you know, Hitchcock doing that with, uh, you know, the back of the band looking like eyes. You know, these visual cues are there trying to trying to put you in this frame of mind. And it does it fucking wonderfully without you even knowing what's happening to you. Right. Yeah. Parallel shots like uh, when we first see the silhouette of the murderer, it cuts to the victim's mother, and she's in you know, in the exact same pose, but she's holding a knife, cutting vegetables. Yep. You know, it's just so subtle, but yet so fucking brilliant. Um, it's, I mean, you can just go on and on about all these all this shit he does, but there's one mm-hmm. shot in particular I want to point out that when the bad guys decide that there's all these beggars and they've almost got like a guild, you know, they've got, you know, going back to the unions, right. they've got like this guild where all the beggars and panhandlers, they all get together and, you know, work. pool their resources and all this stuff. Yeah. And there is a shot where it, 
it follows, goes completely through the entire building. And, you know, it goes over, over the table where they're playing cards and then onto this next beggar doing this. And, uh, this Put, guy pulling the sandwiches out that they found or, or yeah. whatever. Right. And then it goes outside up one floor and then through a window into what's going on upstairs. And if you've, I mean, if you've seen a Martin Scorsese movie, like uh Goodfellas, when, you know, he's going through the club and the cameras following him and there's all this stuff going right. on. I mean, huh? it's, it's, it looks like Scorsese fucking shot this in 1930. You know, it's just an amazing shot. And you can see, you can kind of see where the hidden edit is when, you know, they move from the one right. floor to the second. And if you watch real close, you can see the window opening. But considering what they had to work with, you know, Takashi Miike, you know, we've done it digitally now. Right. But, you know, it's the same kind of shot that Miike uses or Scorsese or any of these, you know, these great fucking. I mean, the fact that it was done in 1931 with these bulky ass fucking cameras and it is a sound shot. So, I mean, mm -hmm. that's one of those fucking monster cameras. And you've got a sound engineer having to fucking, you know, follow along. Right. Uh, it's, I mean, it's incredible that, you know, technically speaking, it's an amazing fucking shot. And it's something we take for granted nowadays. But to see it in 1931, I was just fucking blown away the first time I saw that. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it, I watched him and, and the keynote version of uh, Metropolis back-to-back, uh, -back, basically. Mm -hmm. And um, it's funny because, I mean, these are only – this is the same director and it's the same uh, – you know, only four years later and whatnot. However, the style to me seemed to be so much different because, I mean, this was all based in reality, whereas, uh, um, you know, Metropolis was this grand design, you know, where everything in this movie was basically, you know, just how it is. I mean, it, you know, it was, it was set in a, it looked like a regular, you know, German city. Um, you know, and the, the story is kind of a, it's kind of a different, you know, I mean, I don't think it was supposed to be anything as epic as, you know, he tried to make the end of Metropolis or anything like that. Mm -hmm. However, the, you know, and like you were saying, the story is really simple. It basically was this, uh, this race of, of these two uh, regularly competing forces to, you know, they didn't band together or anything like that, but, uh, you know, they had the same mission and they, you know, and they went after this guy, you know, as best as they knew how, um, ends up being just kind of a, a fairly simple yet. Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting plot in my, in my opinion, mm -hmm. but the thing I, the, 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 the thing I liked most about this one and you know, neither of these are really horror movies and I know people, uh, you know, are really bummed that uh, we're not talking about like grizzly horror, right? I'm sure. Yeah. But, uh, but this one, the, the atmosphere and the mood played every big, a part in this movie as those uh you know the 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 sets in the cinematography and all that did in metropolis i mean mm -hmm. what you say oh yeah and you know m is sometimes built as a horror movie sometimes not you know some of the books right. i you know some of the books i have on horror movies don't even mention it others you know of course talk about you know p and laurie and his psychology of you know of that role but the fact of the matter is you know that for opening five minutes when you have that first victim First right. off, first off, stylistically, yeah, we are out of the expressionist period, but right. but still, you know, we have 
you know, like Peter Laurie's shadow passing over the 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 murder sign. And, yeah, and, and, and it's, yeah, it's, but, it's, very, but it's, it's still it's, based in reality. Right. It's you know? yeah. So there is the nod to expressionism, but at the same time, Except yeah, for, this is yeah, very maybe, grounded. Maybe the, it's from a strange angle where a light typically wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. But no, I okay. But I okay. So I, I can but, see what you're saying. But as as far as hor- horrificness goes, as far as gut, I mean, you get that lump in your fucking stomach. Oh, absolutely. when you've got this mother yelling for her child, she's calling mm-hmm. for her child, and you're just shown the the series of scenes, and each one you hear her voice over top of it. You know, the little girl's ball rolling away, the balloon right. she's got floating up into the power lines. And it's like, oh my God, you know, it just fucking grabs you. And it's, it's every bit as terrifying as if they would have shown, you know, somebody being fucking stabbed. Well, it's funny too, because ever after that, after the first scene that, that, you know, we keep mentioning, it just seems like there is a huge sense of urgency, you know, by basically everyone in the movie to get this guy that, I mean, you talked about how all these visual cues of time being of the essence. I, I remember thinking to myself, you know, it is, you know, we talked about that great scene where, uh, you know, they, the, the, the cops and then the, the organized crime members guys were, uh, you know, kind of having the same conversation, just, you know, a little bit different based on who they are. But I've ever seen myself, holy crap, you guys, you guys need to get your balls out there and start going after them. And I, I mean, I even had to laugh at myself. Cause I'm like, man, this is this is working on me, you know. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, sense yeah. urgency throughout the whole movie. Yeah, like like I said, the like that first scene, the first time I I saw that opening scene, I mean, there were literally tears in my eyes. It is that fucking moving, and it's just you know you think about the worst possible thing that could happen to a child, right. and there's this poor desperate mother, you know, who is you know apparently doing people's laundry in her house to fucking you know, right put food on the table and right. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, as, as a parent, it's a fucking terrifying thing. And so as far as horror goes now, I guess the biggest, you know, we, we talk about this being, you know, Fritz Lang's move into the, uh, talkie era. You, you have something here that you are going to see all the way through horror movies from here on out. And when I tell you, I'm, I'm t- talking about, the audio, the audio cue here in this case, it's, uh, you know, in the hall of the mountain King, right? That whistling lets you know that something horrible is potentially going to happen. Right. I mean, look at, look at fucking Friday the 13th and that, that audio cue there that immediately sets you (laughs) on edge. You know exactly what's coming. Jason's coming Uh because of that distinctive audio cue. Right. And this that's I mean and that's something that's been carried out from this movie on. When you hear that whistling, you know you just immediately go on the edge of your fucking seat. Mm-hmm. And what's and what's really interesting, well first off, um Peter Lorre couldn't whistle. That's Fritz Lang doing all the whistling. Oh, are you serious? Well, funny. Yeah. But um uh, there are scenes where you'll you'll see that Peter Lorre is you know, he's miming the whistling. But there's mm-hmm. other scenes where he is struggling with that. Like, for instance, when he goes into that little cafe and starts, uh, you know, down in the drinks, where he's almost, you know, um, you know, had right. the near miss with the child. Right. And he starts down in the drinks. The whistling there, he's not whistling. It's in his head. 
and that cue that, okay, he's battling this fucking thing inside of him. Uh-huh. I mean, for somebody that claims to not have that auditory art, artisticness. Talent, yeah. Right. I mean, he fucking sure fucking fooled me. You know, it, and I mean, we talked a little bit about the end with the kangaroo court and everything like that. And I mean, that kind of brought some kind of a, of a, of a closure to it. You know, and it, it gave you kind of some food for thought and whatever. Um, you know, you know, should we, these guys were going to just take, take, uh, you know, this child murderer out. And some people, he's saying, oh, listen, you know, take me to the police. There's that, the one advocate that he had, you know, and, and whatnot. And, you know, in, in my opinion, I, I'll be honest with you. I like this movie a lot, but I think what the story did, um, in, 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 and I, I know that I shouldn't always just compare it to Metropolis, but I can't help it since I watched the same that. But this was actually, from start to finish, this was really compelling. And the ending really was like, uh, you know, really made an impression that, you know what, after, you know, and I guess this is somewhat of a spoiler, but, uh, you know, the impression, or the, the kind of the final idea that they leave you with is, listen, no matter what you do to this guy, you know, we need to keep an eye on the children. You know, that's, you know, that, that's what's important. You know, it's like, you know, I, I just felt satisfied after this movie. Yeah. You know, after watching the whole thing, I, I, you know, and, and let's see, if this was on the regular Cadaver Lab, this would get a, a high as a, of a bone saw that there could be. And what's interesting is that, first off, that, I mean, you know, going back to that issue of personal responsibility, you know, that that's what this movie, you know, is kind of, uh, you know, it, that's what the debate right. is. You know, is he yep. responsible for his actions? But you've right. got that ending where it's saying, no, you, the parents, are you need to watch your kids. Absolutely. Because there are monsters out there. And mm-hmm. oddly enough, that final scene was cut from it the movie. It ended really abruptly, by the way. Is that is that was that just me? Or was, I assume it was... No, that, it, it, she said that line and then all of a sudden, boom, Netflix was over. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's, that's the way uh, Lang intended it. That was his message. Well, it was it was it was great. I mean, I'm not criticizing. And that, I, I didn't know if that was. But when when this movie was cut down to you know a 90 minute runtime, uh, that was one of the scenes to go. Was that final scene? Instead, for years, the movie ended with the uh, courtroom. You know, the shot of the courtroom. Really? Yeah, and never showed you the scene with the mothers or you know them saying, "Hey, watch your kids." Right, huh? And um, well, that 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 doesn't that doesn't kind of that wouldn't hit us uh, it wouldn't hit home as much to me. I think I'm glad that they put that back somehow. Yeah, well, again, I I think part of it comes to you know down to your personal perspective on things, right? But, you know whether or not I mean because the more dramatic scene, you know, maybe you know to end on the courtroom, and yeah, that's where maybe. he's ended up, and you know, is there going to be a judgment against him or whatever? You know, you've got a little ambiguity there. But right. but the final message of the movie, as Lang intended it, and again, this is a scene that I think the restoration on this was like ninety seven. I want to say is when they finally put this movie back together. I know it was it's relatively recently that they finally added that scene back in. Okay, and um, you know, again, you know, they thirty minutes from this movie went. And that's the way it was, you know, that's the only way it was available for years was in the 90, 90, I think 94 minute. That's why I haven't seen it yet. Cause I wanted to wait until they actually put it together and it was worthy for me on both of these movies. Yeah, really. I mean, you don't want to half ass <laughs> it. So, you know, wait, wait until they find all the pieces to, 
Exactly. Well, we've we've talked about you know Nazis quite a bit. Uh, mm-hmm. Goebbels or goat balls. He uh, <laughs> when he originally saw this movie, like absolutely praised it. But once the Nazis took power, uh, it was one of the first movies that was banned. Really? Yes. Um, the whole thing with uh, Fritz Lang and the Nazis, um, the Dr. Mabuse series, I think, I forget how many movies are in that series. It ran all the way through the 60s. Mm. Um, but there's a movie called The Testament of Dr. Mabuse, which came out in, after this, probably 32 or 33. It must have been 32. It must have been his next movie. Um, where he actually took Hitler's own words and put them in the mouths of, in the mouth of this uh, master criminal, and really? that did not sit well with the Nazis. Oh, and sure. One of the reasons, and you know, of course, that movie was banned too. But yeah, like I said, they they pulled that scene of Peter Lorre, you know, having his fucking breakdown and begging for his life. And right. uh, used it as a Nazi propaganda, which was you yeah. know, for, couldn't be further from uh, you know, Fritz Lang's intentions. Right. Peter Lorre's role in this, uh, I don't, I don't think we could say enough about how no. fucking great the, his. I mean, because it, uh, you know, and I honestly can see how this would stick with him for a while. You know, yeah. and and people could just because, you know, uh, he sold it, man. I really, I really, you started seeing him and you just kind of get a little disgusted with him. When he went to Hollywood, you know, in movies like the Maltese Falcon and Casablanca, you know, he plays a weaselly kind of character, but you know, he's almost likable. I mean, it's almost comical at that mm-hmm. point, but at this point there is, I mean, there's nothing funny about him. He's, no. he's terrifying and pathetic all at the same time. And, you know, and this is something you know that wouldn't happen really. You know, in the '60s, you'll see it with characters like Norman Bates, or uh, you know, in Peeping Tom, where you've got you know trying to you know maybe delve into the humanity and the psychology of a vicious killer mm-hmm. or a sociopath. This really set that standard. Norman Bates is the closest thing I can come to as a character as compelling as uh, Peter Laurie in this movie. Yeah, but but unlike Norman Bates, this guy was not likable, in my opinion. No, it, it, uh, but I think I think what I mean is no. In this, yeah, it's it's so not. Effective. Yeah, the, you've got that gray area there throughout this movie. You know, this entire he's got this entire city in this grip of terror. You know, right. to and I mean to the extent where even the criminals are saying we've got to fucking stop this guy. Then to see him as he is, uh, such a pathetic fucking creature. Almost, you almost, I mean, I can see where you could have sympathy for this character mm. by the time he fucking gets finished with, you know, his breakdown. Maybe. I was ready to string his ass up, but I'm an a-hole. But, uh, well, I mean, the, the thing is, you know, it, you look at him and you go, this is what, this is what everybody's fucking afraid of. Right. This no, creature laying it. on the floor groveling and, you know, I can't help it. And right. I mean, it's just just such a brilliant fucking performance. No, great movie. I don't know. I don't know if this is this is actually true, but certainly I can see it. Uh, somebody pointed out, you know, just uh, somebody online in one of the uh, uh, discussion boards I saw mm-hmm. uh, said he watched this and uh, the Fellowship of the or um, the Two Towers back to back, and said if you l- look at Gollum. 
and look at mm. Peter Lorre's performance. You know, was talking about how similar they were and was speculating whether or not that, uh, you know, Peter Jackson drew on, you know, Peter Lorre's performance to create Gollum because you've got, you know, the same kind of bug eyed, you know, the same kind of features in Gollum that you see in Peter Lorre. But also well, this, and- this evil character, but yet at the same time, so very fucking pathetic. So I'm, I'm, I'm that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so I'm kind of curious. I mean, I'd like to know whether or not Peter Jackson did have that in his mind when, uh, you know, putting uh, Lord of the Rings together, whether or not that was an influence, because it certainly seems like it from watching the two. Absolutely. These were, you know, these were some good movies. I mean, I even even though with my complaints about Metropolis, I, you know, it's something that I'm glad I I, I checked out. You know, it's something that I think that uh, if nothing else, it's a great piece of art that. Uh, that I don't know. It's worth watching. I just yeah, that, that the ending was rough. But this end, I, 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 it's hard for me to find things to really come down on with with him. I don't know. I didn't. The, I, the only the only part I didn't. The only part I did. I did have one problem with him, and was mm-hmm. and was during the. It's kind of because this movie is, you know, part serial killer. You know, there's there's these suspenseful moments. You know, is this child mm-hmm. going to be a victim? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course the whole chase, you know, with him, you know, trying to get away from all the people chase, you know, their right. the manhunt that's on, but, but there's also a procedural element to it. There's one scene where like the head of the police is talking to the guy that's the head of the investigation. He's going on and on about all the obstacles they're up against. Right. Whereas now we've, you know, we're so familiar with police procedurals. Right. <laughs> that people you know, don't care. They yeah, right, sure. Yeah, you know, okay, we have, and I mean, I didn't. Something I found out, even when this movie was made, there were over a million fingerprints on file in uh, Berlin. So ah. could you imagine, like, trying to fucking sort through all these fucking a million fingerprints by hand? You're well, trying uh, to before match the day it. where they have that machine that goes. Yeah, you know, it all these fingerprints come up. <laughs> right. But, you know, it's, but the whole conversation, he just didn't sit well with me because it just seemed to drag. Be like, well, we're up against, Maybe. you know, you need to work harder. Well, this is what we're up against. Well, no, work harder. Well, we're also up against this. Well, work harder. Right. You know, well, we're sure. also up against this, you know, but it does go through all. It's interesting, you know, I guess from a 1931 perspective. To see mm-hmm. all the obstacles that the police would be up against, hunting down well, fingerprints you know, I, by hand, it, what, the unreliability of eyewitnesses. I mean, right. you know, and that's something you know, you know, everybody right, talks you're about. You're right. Now, it's, we don't. Yeah, we know eyewitnesses are unreliable, but you know, in 1931, you know, if you had an eyewitness, you know, that was pretty much it. But here, well, one of the you know, here he makes was, a point to say, you know, eyewitnesses are unreliable. You've got 15 witnesses and everybody saw something different, which was yeah. something, you know, I guess uh, I guess I've never seen that in a movie you know, prior to this. Oh, well, you know, in the part where he was complaining about how people just don't care, you know, people are not on looking at, you know, it, I think that kind of made kind of went along with the theme of the of the story a little bit. I mean, it was uh, just the apathy for it. I mean, and I, I found myself thinking, you know, wow, I mean, I wonder if this would really happen, that people would be apathetic to it and, and whatnot, but no, I, I mean, listen, that, I mean, I can see what you're saying, but that one, see, it didn't really bother me. Yeah, to me, it, to um, me, to me, it just drug a little bit, 
but, Maybe. You know, but I understand why it was there and you know, sure. considering the time, it, I mean, it doesn't fucking, that's my only detraction from this movie at all <laughs> because everything yeah. else in it is just so fucking incredible. And, and, I, and I'm with you on this one. It's funny because I've read the synopsis of this movie a bunch of times over the years, and I've never brought myself to watch it. So I'm like, eh, and, you know, 1931, this is a pretty typical thing. You know, it's like, uh, you know, I, it didn't really seem like there was that much that I would be interested in based solely on the synopsis. But, I mean, there's a hell of a lot more to it. You know, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's in the performances. It's in the kind of nuanced, uh, I don't know, the, 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 the way they kind of the ideas that they had, the, you know, the, the perceptions that they had of what's going on. And not to mention just the, the, the creepiness of the, you know, your, your uh, audio cue. You're, uh, you know, and some of those things were really creepy, like that, just like the balloon flying in the power lines and stuff like that. You know, it was all, it, it was just all pretty compelling. Oh, yeah. So. It's, it's, I mean, it's <laughs> just a brilliant fucking movie. I mean, that's all that flat out. I, I'm glad, I'm glad we decided to do it because this is def- this is one that I, I'd throw on again and again. Um, you got anything there. else about this one? Then? Um, no, I think we've uh, pretty much covered it. I mean, I, Again, you know, again, this time out, we've got two movies that are, are absolutely on, you know, my must see list before you die. Mm-hmm. And right now they're both streaming on Netflix. So hop on that, people. Yeah, absolutely. They're, 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 they're you got gorgeous. no fucking excuse. <laughs> well, unless you don't have Netflix, but uh, we don't accept that. These are I think these are both on uh, archive.org. I don't know what I assume that. Uh, uh, I, yeah, the, the, these are. Yeah. If you watch it on archive.org, I do know that key, because the Kino version is copyrighted by the Murnau right. Foundation. Uh, one yeah. thing, if anybody in England, because it's a different company, I think it's Eureka video has the distribution rights for Metropolis. They actually have a, a, a commentary track on their disc that the Kino version doesn't have. I'd be curious if if anybody has listened to that or has any hmm. you know any insights in in that they found interesting from that if they've had a chance to check it out. We don't have it here in the U.S. All we've got is really? but um oh. just just real quick going back to Metropolis, how mm-hmm. um you know, just real quick how amazing is that fucking score that you know, the, the original score the, that the was restored. put back in? Oh yeah. no, it's it 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 makes the experience much better than uh, the the 80s score i mean by far it's it just it's epic and it's it's sweeping in it and it, i think it matches the visuals as opposed to uh you know i thought uh maybe stephen perry was going to come out a couple times and start <laughs> rocking us you know with the 80s version but no it was epic sweeping matched it perfectly it was great yeah and it's one of the cases you know um you know, we were talking off air about sergio leone you know, mm-hmm. Morricone used to score his stuff either like before the movie started. He'd, you know, look at the script and get ideas. And sometimes they'd even play him on the set, you know, to mm-hmm. get the timing right. And uh, this was when, uh, going back to Metropolis. Oh, God, I wish I could think of the dude's name that wrote this. Can't think of the guy that did the score. But uh, again, it was a, it was a case of where the music was written, you know, in advance and alongside with the movie because, um, was meant to be an integral part of it. And he actually, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, created a theme for Maria, created a motif for uh freighter, created a motif for the workers, created, you know, all these different motifs so that they could be integrated. And 
uh, really enhance the experience. And it's, it's great to see that's finally been put back in its rightful place because it does, yeah, it only makes it even that much more uh, fucking compelling experience. The wiki mm. says that the the guy who did the music was named Gottfried Hupperts. Hupperts. I knew it started with an H, but I couldn't fucking kept wanting to say Herzog, and I know that's not fucking right because he's a director. You're gonna say Hitler because we've been talking about Nazis. Yeah, so fucking much. Nazis. Yeah, I don't. I, I think <laughs> one of the little known facts about uh, Hitler: hell of a kazoo player. Really? Yes. Did not not, not so fond of the Jews' harp, though. Why? I think that's what started it all. It was German Expressionism and people playing the Jews harp and uh, forgetting what's going on. So he had them shipped to everybody. That's what happened. <laughs> and then, oh, then had them all burned. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Man, what a son of a bitch. Yeah. Uh, you know, we do have, uh, if, if, you, if any British guys call it, you can, we have a number in, a, in an email now. Yeah, I don't know yeah. what the fucking number is. So you're gonna I'm to... going to tell you right now. Oh, well, please enlighten me. 206-350-3492. Uh, 206-350-3492. Email is uh, classics at com. So, yeah, man, this was an epic. This was These two movies were epic. Can I just say that? We, we, maybe we want to do something a little bit more popcorn-y for next time. But, yeah, uh, yeah, we might wear, might, might wear to bring it down a notch since we were on our fucking high horse this week. <laughs> you, we? We. <laughs> like, like I said, Metropolis is just one of those movies that you know, I'm just fucking fascinated by and sure. have been for fucking 22 years. I've been fascinated with it for at least uh, two days. Well, Until I'm, that ending, damn it. Damn it. <laughs> Across me. I probably took that personally. Anyway. Yeah, well, actually, right, actually, <laughs> the, another little-known fact. In the sequel, uh, Metropolis 2, Electric Boogaloo, um, <laughs> the mediator... That's breaking 2, right? No? Okay. Yeah, anyway. okay. But, but yeah, the uh, mediator was uh, buried under giant stadium. So, in the Meadowlands. No! Yes, so... Uh, I don't I don't get the joke, but it's uh, funny, I'm sure. Jimmy Hoffa. Oh, since you were to go to Union. All right. You're hilarious. And on that awesome note, let's, uh, let's see. Thanks for coming on again, man. This is always a treat for me. Man, I love doing it, buddy. All right. All right. And thanks. you at home. Later, bitches. <laughs> Bye.